0: The Better Understanding podcast is an invitation, an open-hearted extended hand to increase our ability to work, lead, and live with one another more effectively. The premise and philosophy of the podcast is that it all begins with understanding ourselves and understanding others. In season one, and with some of the most successful experts and leaders of diversity and inclusion efforts in the world, we explored what it means to lead inclusively. In season two, we are bringing to life our Wall Street Journal best selling book, Arrive and Thrive, via powerful stories, earned wisdom, and lessons learned from some of the world's preeminent leaders and thrivers. Join me, Susan McInty Brady, as we explore how to arrive and thrive. I'm delighted to introduce today's Better Understanding podcast guest, Whitney Johnson. Whitney is the CEO of Disruption Advisors, a tech enabled talent development company. She was named the 2021 Top 10 Business Thinker by Thinkers 50, is a globally recognized thought leader, keynote speaker, executive coach, and consultant, a LinkedIn top voice since 2019 with 1.8 million followers. Wow. Whitney is the best-selling author of Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company, and the host of Disrupt Yourself, her podcast, which is ranked in the top 0.5% of listenership of all podcasts. Pretty cool. I came across Whitney's work when I was given a copy of Disrupt Yourself and then bought Dream Do. She is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and to MIT Sloan Management Review. And my Arrive and Thrive co-authors and I were delighted to interview Whitney and feature her incredible work in our book and make the connection with fostering resilience, which we'll talk about shortly. So Whitney, welcome to the Better Understanding Podcast, and thank you so much for taking time to be with us today.
1: Susan, thank you, and thanks for the lovely introduction.
0: Well, can you tell us anything else that you'd want our listeners to know about you?
1: Yes, a few things I think might be interesting. Number one is that I am married. I have two children. We live in Lexington, Virginia, because I think oftentimes when talking to women, we wonder, you know, do they have children? Are they married, et cetera? So yes, I am married and happily married. I think another thing that might be interesting to know, and maybe others can relate, is that I didn't really plan on having a career. I went to college, I studied music, but I had this vague notion that I would get married, that I would have children, maybe I would work. But I graduated from college not really knowing what I was going to be when I grew up. And I don't know if a lot of people can relate to that. I don't know that men as much, but I think I wonder if a number of women can relate to the fact that I didn't really have any sense of what I wanted to start doing until I was in my mid-20s.
0: And well, of course, now I want to know, how did you become who you are? But let's start out with diving into resilience, since that's the practice where we feature some of your brilliant work in our book. And I'm wondering, how did your early years influence how you view resilience? and. Tell me how that's played out for you in your
1: thought leadership. I love that you asked this question because as I think about your book, you really teased out the difference between surviving and thriving. And as I reflected on my life and perhaps what I just shared with you a moment ago, if I had some vague notion of what I would do, but no real grand plan, I realized that my mother, and probably she learned this from her mother and her grandmother, it was about surviving. Um, We will survive. We will get through this. And I think there is some element of resilience in that, meaning it's not going to crush you. But that also implied that things were happening to us as opposed to us being agents in our own lives. And so what I learned is this incredible sense of I can survive. And that led to resilience. But I don't think it was until much later that I started to think about what does resilience look like in terms of thriving, in terms of being able to say, what do I want to do? And how do I want to be an agent in my life? Was there something that
0: impacted that consciousness raising in yourself about the connection to fostering resilience and thriving in your work?
1: I think that moving toward thriving for me, I I don't know that there was this one epiphany, this one moment, but if I reflect on my life, I think there are two, um, actually three people that come to mind that sort of this step function of making this big leap forward in terms of moving from surviving to thriving. So the first person was um, that when I was in college, I met a really wonderful therapist. At the time, of course, I wouldn't talk about having a therapist because no one talked about having a therapist back when I was in college. But that was the beginning of me starting to build this awareness that my life and how I was thinking about the world could be different. And so I credit her immensely. Her name is Leslie Finehour. Give her a shout out. So that's person number one. Person number two was also, it sounds like the uh, Dr. Seuss story, person number two also equally. Actually, in the end, more influential is my husband. Not that my husband taught me about thriving, but he gave such a safe space for me to live emotionally and spiritually that there was a sense of everything is okay. I don't need to focus on surviving. And once those basic sort of emotional needs were taken care of, that prepared or created this seedbed where the ideas of thriving could start to take root. And then the third thing I would say is much, much later, and this is in the last 10 years, is I met a man by the name of Bob Proctor. And you may have heard of him. He was featured in The Secret, really very much a part of the human potential movement. And had a conversation with him. I was speaking on a panel for Junior Achievement. And after I spoke, he pulled me aside and he said, I think you could be more. I think you could do more than what you're doing. And that led me to doing a lot of studying, a lot of work, a lot of reading around this idea of potential, this idea of disrupting my mindset and how I was thinking about myself and how I was thinking about the world. And putting that together with this bedrock that had been established with my husband and my therapist. And Helping me operationalize what I already believed from a spiritual standpoint. So I'm a very faith-filled person who believes in God, but his ideas really helped me operationalize what I believed to be true, but I hadn't quite known how to enact it. And so I would say those three encounters, those people, those interactions are what have allowed me over time. And I'm still not there, but I'm much more in the camp of thriving. Res- resilience thriving as opposed to resilience survival that I was when I was younger.
0: So uh, you know, you're, you're just said so much that I'm, I sort of want to like deep dive. I, I love these moments. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to hear more about Bob. I want to hear more about your relationship. Uh, thank you for sharing the people who influenced you and the fact you know, what's what's coming to mind is as we did the research on resilience and, and even like I'm asked, like you probably are at the end of podcasts and talks, like what's your one tip or what's the thing? Mm-hmm. And I always say like, we're just not meant to go it alone, you know? And, um, and, it, and it is the relationships that we form over time that sort of insolence our thinking. Let's get to the heart of the matter and give our listeners an idea of the S-curve of learning. And can you briefly explain what this means and, and how you can apply that to resilience, because it's been such a beautiful contribution, certainly has impacted my life, Whitney, and I really want our listening audience to
1: understand. Yeah. The S-curve of learning, one of my favorite subjects. So uh, the S-curve itself was popularized by the sociologist Everett Rogers back in the 60s, and he used it to help us understand how groups change over time. We then applied it at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I co-founded with Clay Christensen to help us think through investing, how quickly an invest or an innovation would be adopted. As we were investing, I had this insight, this aha, that the S-curve could also help us understand how individuals, not groups, but how individuals change, how we learn and how we grow. And briefly, what it does is if you want to picture in your mind this S, there are three major parts. There's the launch point, which is the base of the S. There's the sweet spot, which is a steep, steep, sleek back of the S. And then there's the top of the S, which is this place of mastery. And so, what's happening in your brain, and then I can talk about this from a resilience standpoint, is that when you start something new, your brain is running this model and it's making predictions of, what is it going to take to get from the bottom of this s to the top of the s well at the launch point most of the predictions are inaccurate and so dopamine the chemical messenger of delight it drops and we have this experience then of feeling thrilled but also terrified and discouraged and overwhelmed and it's not that growth isn't happening it is but it feels slow um Then in the sweet spot, your predictions are increasingly accurate. Your dopamine spikes. You feel these emotional upside surprises. Growth's not only fast, it feels fast. You feel exhilarated. In mastery, the model is working. So your predictions are accurate. But because you're no longer learning, you can start to get bored. So growth is, in fact, slow. So now you have slow and then fast and slow is a very simple visual model of what growth looks like. How does this help you be more resilient? Well, at the launch point, you now understand, I feel awkward. I feel uncomfortable. I feel inept. I feel like an imposter. Yes, you do. Of course you do. This is exactly how you're supposed to feel. And that allows you to be more resilient because you're able to make meaning of the experience that you're having And it's not that you're not ever going to be good at it. It's just that you're doing something new. It normalizes the experience. The second thing that it does is that when you're in the sweet spot is it allows you to say, okay, everything is working. It's also very helpful for you when you're in mastery, because what's happening there is your brain is saying, I need more dopamine. I need to do something new. And I'm about to go do something scary because I'm going to keep climbing or I'm going to jump to a new curve. And that now helps you understand, okay, I'm going to do this, but it's going to be less scary because I understand what growth looks like. And I have this map for what it looks like. And that's going to allow me to hold this space and give myself the courage to do something new.
0: Okay. So So, as our listeners take this on, and even as I take this on and in and think about the times I've disrupted myself or the times when other circumstances outside me have disrupted me, what's the thing you want leaders to hang on to? What's the thing that, that what's the muscle that goes along that we need to build as we journey
1: mm -hmm. through these stages? I think the muscle that we need to build. Is that the older we get, the more we can insulate ourselves from ever doing anything new. Which means we get out of practice of doing new things. Which means things like a pandemic that happened to the world at the same time. We had nearly all of us say, I just got pushed off my S-curve. And I have no idea what I'm doing and no, neither does anybody else. And so we, we had to develop that muscle again. We had to figure out, how do I navigate doing something new? Because I don't know how to do this because I'm out of practice. And what the S-curve does is it helps you be more resilient. It helps you navigate the new thing because it gives you this map It gives you this way to trace the emotional arc of growth. It allows you to say, okay, I'm doing this new thing. I feel awkward and uncomfortable. Oh yeah, this is normal. It allows you to say in the sweet spot, it's fast. It's supposed to feel fast. And I also know that when I get at the top of that curve, I'm going to have this experience of I'm really good at this and I can't keep doing it. I need to do something else because I need more dopamine. It now normalizes that experience of your feeling like, I know I should, maybe I feel like I should want to stay here, but I can't because I need to do something new. So what it does is it helps you develop that muscle that we all need to do something new by giving you this map, by giving you this way to trace the emotional arc of growth so that we will have the courage to do new things because... Learning is the oxygen of human growth. And if we're not growing, we're stagnating. if we're not growing, we're dying. So we need to grow. And the S-curve helps make it easier for us to grow because it helps us map what growth looks like.
0: Learning is the oxygen of human growth. Here, sheer. So look, there, especially after the pandemic, I'm wondering if you've seen this, because none of us asked for that. And because it was an external kick in the pants, I wonder if we run the risk of everybody just wants to hang out at mastery for a little longer. And I'm wondering what the dangers of that are. So I feel like we're in a peri-pandemic moment, right? It's not quite Delta, but we're still, you know, in the fall of 2022, still navigating this world. And because we've had so much disruption, I know even my own tolerance for disruption feels just... Less. And, and yet, I know cognitively that hanging out at mastery is danger zone. Can you say a little bit about that? And what's the replacement narrative for those of us who are committed to learning, who mm. breathe the oxygen of learning and teach other people how to how to breathe the oxygen
1: of learning? I like how you said that, the replacement narrative. So I think that is the essence of the dilemma. So If you talk to a mountain climber, they will tell you that any altitude above 26,000 feet is known as the death zone. You're so high up, your brain and your body will start to die. So for those of us, when we get to the top of an S-curve, we are effectively on top of a mountain. And there's a piece of us that likes being on top of the mountain. We like being the master of all we survey. We like the comfort that we feel. and yet there is something inside of us that also knows that, as I said a moment ago, if we're not growing, we're dying. Our brain absolutely must have more dopamine. And we have that feeling when we're at the top of a curve that if we don't move, that there's something more for us to do on this planet. And so ultimately, we will end up moving. Now, if that still doesn't work, the other way you can reframe it is that we are more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. This is loss aversion theory. So as you're at the top and you're experiencing that dilemma and you're saying, I still really want to stay here a little bit longer. One of the ways you can motivate yourself is instead of saying, here are all the wonderful things that are going to happen to me if I jump to a new curve or if I keep climbing, say to yourself, what bad things will happen to me if I stay here? Because if you're not growing, if you're not growing you're dying, if you're not building new neural pathways, your plateau that you want to camp out on will at some point become a precipice. You will at some point sabotage yourself. You will at some point get disrupted. And it's always going to be better to disrupt yourself than to be disrupted. So that is several ways that I would think about it and get ourselves to move when we're feeling like, oh, I'm not sure I want to move. The other thing that I would do for when you're saying, you know what, I'm kind of (laughs) tired. I think I just want to stay here. I would invite you to consider that your life is a portfolio of S-curves, that at any given time you're on three or four S-curves. And so if you find yourself where you've got four S-curves and they're all on the launch point, then that's a point at which you need to say to yourself, That's probably too many on the launch point. So if you can instead say to yourself, you know what, I need to have at least one S-curve in my life where I am at mastery, where I am at the top of the curve that's anchoring the rest of my life, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's in your relationships. And so that that allow yourself to be there so that can anchor some of the new things that you need to do. Um, You've just moved to a new city. You're caring for an aging parent. Maybe not a good time to take on a new job. But if things are stable with your family, things are stable in the community that you're in, that's exactly the time to take on a really big, hairy challenge at work or in the community. And so you think about your life as a portfolio of S-curves. How do you balance them? So you've got one or two in the sweet spot, maybe one in mastery, one at the launch point, So they're balancing each other out. You're optimizing yourself for growth um, without being overwhelmed by the growth.
0: Uh, I I love the uh, portfolio of S-curves. And it reminds me of something I've been thinking about. I've been hearing a lot about it with me as I talk to people who, when I was a kid, would have been like fraternities. You know, I'm not going to name the age because it's too close to mine who are just actually rediscovering a whole new self and and they self-describe as being at the top of their game and excited about what's coming. And I would say they're probably more at their sweet spot than sort of that mastery. And it's so exciting. But I think about this as a mosaic, right? And about the choice point we all want now about our livelihood and about our creativity and about how we give up our gifts and talents is a multitude of things, which I love a portfolio of S-curves I guess going back to the very practical advice you have is bad things if I stay the same in whatever portion of your portfolio you're looking at.
1: Good things if I move. Did I hear that right? Yeah, you did. Yeah. yeah. So loss aversion theory says that we're 2.2 times more motivated. This is Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. 2.2 times more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. And so if we can say to ourselves, okay. Uh, bad things are going to happen to me if I just stay here, that sometimes is um, more motivating. And I'll give you a very simple example, which is if you're preparing, for example, for a speech and you think if I prepare, then I will give a beautiful, wonderful speech that might motivate you. But I know for me, I'm more motivated by if I don't prepare and I vomit, I'm going to feel terrible. So that's a pretty strong motivator for me.
0: I'm wondering if they've ever done research that is stuff like gender, because my experience working with women is it's more than 2.2 times motivated by what they lose, oh. that they gain. the fear factor. We did do some research, as you know, for the book, some lit review and research on if women are more risk adverse than men. And and frankly, there are different ways women take risks than men. And we didn't find any conclusive data that said, or research that said women are more risk adverse by and large. I just, I see this play out day to day. And I'm just wondering if you've seen any trends with reluctance to kick oneself off of one part of the S-curve.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, that's a great question, Susan. So here's what I would say. What I have seen is that if, so Okay, so we just described the S-curve and the experience of doing something new. Then you layer on to that the research around how women are judged more on track record um, versus men who are judged more on potential. What that then means is that for a woman who is at the top of an S-curve, it, it's going to be more difficult for her if she wants to jump to a new one, it's gonna be more difficult to jump because people may say, well, you haven't done this before. You don't have a track record of doing it. Which then may also make it so, which is why women don't apply for a job unless they have 100% of the qualifications as opposed to a man who might apply for 70%. So I think one of the things that you can do when you have a woman working for you, whether you're a woman or a man, one of the biggest gifts that you can give them when you you perceive that they are at the top of a curve where it is time for them to do something new, don't assume that if they want to jump that they will. Maybe the biggest gift you can give to them is say, I see you, I see the good work that you are doing. I know what the research says is everybody's gonna judge you on track record. So you're gonna think you need to wait and everybody else is gonna think you need to wait. So I'm just gonna kick you off this curve and open up the door, create a sponsorship opportunity or be a sponsor of you for that next S curve.
0: So just to elaborate, you mentioned a couple of the biggest biases about women at work. And I want to underscore for our listeners that the performance and the evaluation bias and the promotion bias for women is a very real thing. And then women parrot it. And I remind women, I want to remind everybody now, uh, if you haven't done it before, you're not supposed to know how. And that gap of risk, that gap of the face plant is always more daunting in our minds than it is in reality. When I press people on, what was it like? Did you fall? Did you really hurt yourself when you took that risk? It's usually, well, no, no. So we don't go it alone. Um,
1: Which is why, that because of all of that, that the other reason that thing that happens is that's why at the launch point, women can tend to be super, super perfectionistic because they know that they're being judged on the track record. And so one of the ways through that is to allow yourself to be in this place of not performing, but learning. What am I learning? What am I learning? How am I experimenting? Because that will allow you, I'm back to this idea of dopamine is doing these small experiments to if you're in hyper learning mode, that gets you through the perfectionism, that gets you through the imposter syndrome, that allows you to build that momentum to tip into the sweet spot.
0: So. Switching gears a little around between the connection of resilience and thriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to underscore the premise for thriving that Janet Lynn and I put forth, as you know, is that it's it's a continual experience. There's not like this destination called I will thrive when I get there. Because life happens and things happen, like pandemics and relationships change and all that jazz. When you think about how you have noticed other leaders create an atmosphere where they can thrive. And when you have experienced thriving yourself, are there a few things that you've seen as practices that have been helpful?
1: Mm. Yeah. So I have two thoughts on that. Number one, from a resilient standpoint, and this is something that we've been thinking a lot about from a so if you think about the S-curve, so, you're, you know, think about it as a mountain, like where are you on the mountain? And then you think about what's the weather like, right? That so allows it, is it, you know, sunny and breezy or is it snowing and sleeting? And, um, and so to answer your question is one of the things is there's a culture of resilience and the way I think about it are two ideas. Number one is how do we talk about mistakes, Do we talk about mistakes as, oh, you were bad or you screwed up? Or do we look at it more of, so what systemically was in place that caused this mistake to happen? Or why did this mistake happen? And what's the return on this mistake, this return on failure? So there's a languaging around it that's not um, about the person. It's about what are we learning and what can we do to move forward? So that's, that's the first thing. I would say. And then the second thing that's really been coming to my my mind recently around resilience is it's this idea of networks, where um I, I remember coming across Rob Cross's research at, at Babson, who said that people who are more resilient spend 25 to 35% of their time connecting with people outside of their industry, outside of their sector. So connecting with people not like them. And then I also came across the research of Franz Johansson, who wrote The Medici Effect, which I think is really powerful, where after interviewing thousands of teams, what they found is that the most innovative, and I would argue resilient teams, were those that were diverse because not only did they have more innovative ideas, but this is critical. When it came time to execute against those innovative ideas and they hit roadblocks because they had more, a more diverse team, those teams had more networks to plug into so they could say, well, we can't go this way. Let's go that way or that way or the other way. And so that diverse network allowed to create this safety net that allowed people to be more resilient and to execute more powerfully. So. So those are the two things. Number one is what's the language around a mistake? Do we talk about what are we going to do with this now that it's happened, not why did it happen? Number one. And number two is what does our network look like? Is it diverse? And if it's diverse, then you're going to be able to not only be more innovative, but you're also going to be more able to execute when you hit roadblocks, which allows you not just to survive, but to thrive.
0: Very, very uh, helpful, tangible, and useful for those people who are still wrapping their head around what's all this fuss about inclusion? Whitney, what's maybe a piece of advice that you have for our listeners? If we bring it back to the human, to the individual, to where you started, which is I was looking at organizations and then looked at these trends for individuals. What are you finding is most helpful? What do you want people to remember?
1: Number one, that the fundamental unit of growth and disruption in any organization is the individual that that companies and organizations don't disrupt, people do. And so if you want to grow your organization, start by thinking about how are you going to grow yourself? Meaning, how are you going to not just survive? How are you going to thrive? And what does that look like? Because then if you start to thrive, then because of the contagion effect, you're going to create conditions where the people around you will thrive. And if the people around you are thriving, then your organization will thrive. And so the tactical, practical piece of this, thinking about that theory is, come back to the S curve of learning. It's a model for you to think about what growth looks like. When you understand where you are in your growth, whether you're at the launch point, sweet spot or in mastery, you're able to then know what's next and build momentum along that curve, regardless of where you are. And once you're growing and you're building momentum, you're not surviving, you're thriving. And that's what we're all trying to do is to thrive, not just survive.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay,
1: Uh, so last but not least, where can listeners find you online? Two places I think are probably easiest. Since this is a podcast, I would direct people to our Disrupt Yourself podcast, um, which is they'll be able to find it anywhere that they are listening to your podcast. And then, secondly, we have a weekly newsletter where it's called Whitney's Weekly Wisdom, which is basically me telling stories, um, not always very attractive about myself, of lessons that I'm learning about what growth looks like.
0: Awesome. Whitney, you inspire me. Thank you so much for joining us and bringing your wisdom to our listeners. I appreciate you and the work that you're doing and just have so much gratitude for you. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me, Susan.